Section one of Monsieur Lecoq, Part one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Monsieur Lecoq by Emile Gaboriau, Part one, Section one. At about eleven o'clock in the evening of the twentieth of February, eighteen sixty, which chanced to be Shrove Sunday, a party of detectives left the police station near the old Barrière d'Italie to the direct south of Paris. Their mission was to explore the district extending on the one hand between the high road to Fontainebleau in the Seine, and on the other between the outer boulevards and the fortifications. This quarter of the city had at that time anything but an enviable reputation. To venture there at night was considered so dangerous that the soldiers from the outlying forts who came into Paris with permission to go to the theatre were ordered to halt at the barriere and not to pass through the perilous district excepting in parties of three or four. After midnight these gloomy, narrow streets became the haunt of numerous homeless vagabonds, and escaped criminals and malefactors, moreover, made the quarter their rendezvous. If the day had been a lucky one, they made merry over their spoils, and, when sleep overtook them, hid in doorways or among the rubbish in deserted houses. Every effort had been made to dislodge these dangerous guests, but the most energetic measures had failed to prove successful. Watched, hunted, and in imminent danger of arrest though they were, they always returned with idiotic obstinacy, obeying, as one might suppose, some mysterious law of attraction. Hence the district was for the police an immense trap, constantly baited, and to which the game came of their own accord to be caught. The result of a tour of inspection of this locality was so certain that the officer in charge of the police post called to the squad as they departed, "'I'll prepare lodgings for our guests. Good luck to you and much pleasure.' This last wish was pure irony, for the weather was the most disagreeable that could be imagined. A very heavy snowstorm had prevailed for several days. It was now beginning to thaw, and on all the frequented thoroughfares the slush was ankle-deep. It was still cold, however, a damp chill filled the air, and penetrated to the very marrow of one's bones. Besides, there was a dense fog, so dense that one could not see one's hands before one's face. "'What a beastly job!' growled one of the agents. "'Yes,' replied the inspector who commanded the squad. If you had an income of thirty thousand francs, I don't suppose you'd be here. The laugh that greeted this commonplace joke was not so much flattery as homage to a recognized and established superiority. The inspector was, in fact, one of the most esteemed members of the force, a man who had proved his worth. His powers of penetration were not, perhaps, very great, but he thoroughly understood his profession, its resources, its labyrinths, and its artifices. Long practice had given him imperturbable coolness, a great confidence in himself, and a sort of coarse diplomacy that supplied the place of shrewdness. To his failings and his virtues he added incontestable courage, and he would lay his hand upon the collar of the most dangerous criminal as tranquilly as a devotee dips his fingers in a basin of holy water. 
He was a man about forty-six years of age, strongly built, with rugged features, a heavy moustache, and rather small grey eyes, hidden by bushy eyebrows. His name was Gevrol, but he was universally known as the General. This sobriquet was pleasing to his vanity, which was not slight, as his subordinates well knew, and doubtless he felt that he ought to receive from them the same consideration as was due to a person of that exalted rank. "'If you begin to complain already,' he added gruffly, "'what will you do by and by?' In fact, it was too soon to complain. The little party were then passing along the Rue de Choisy. The people on the footways were orderly, and the lights of the wine-shops illuminated the street. All these places were open. There is no fog or thaw that is potent enough to dismay lovers of pleasure, and a boisterous crowd of maskers filled each tavern and public ballroom. Through the open windows came alternately the sounds of loud voices and bursts of noisy music. Occasionally a drunken man staggered along the pavement, or a masked figure crept by in the shadow cast by the houses. Before certain establishments Gevrol commanded a halt. He gave a peculiar whistle, and almost immediately a man came out. This was another member of the force. His report was listened to, and then the squad passed on. "'To the left, boys,' ordered Gevrol. "'We will take the Rue d'Ivry, and then cut through the shortest way to the Rue de Chevalerie.' From this point the expedition became really disagreeable. The way led through an unfinished, unnamed street, full of puddles and deep holes, and obstructed with all sorts of rubbish. There were no longer any lights or crowded wine-shops. No footsteps, no voices were heard. Solitude, gloom, and an almost perfect silence prevailed, and one might have supposed oneself a hundred leagues from Paris, had it not been for the deep and continuous murmur that always arises from a large city, resembling the hollow roar of a torrent in some cavern depth. All the men had turned up their trousers and were advancing slowly, picking their way as carefully as an Indian when he is stealing upon his prey. They had just passed the Rue du Chateau de Rentier when suddenly a wild shriek rent the air. At this place, and at this hour, such a cry was so frightfully significant that all the men paused as if by common impulse. "'Did you hear that, General?' asked one of the detectives in a low voice. "'Yes, there is murder going on not far from here. But where? Silence, let us listen.' They all stood motionless, holding their breath, and anxiously listening. Soon a second cry, or rather a wild howl, resounded. Ah! exclaimed the inspector, it is at the poivriere. This peculiar appellation, poivriere, or pepper-box, was derived from the term peppered, which in French slang is applied to a man who has left his good sense at the bottom of his glass. Hence, also, the sobriquet of pepper-thieves, given to the rascals whose specialty it is to plunder helpless, inoffensive drunkards. What? added Gevrol to his companions. Don't you know Mother Chupin's drinking shop there on the right? Run! And, setting the example, he dashed off in the direction indicated. His men followed, and in less than a minute they reached a hovel of sinister aspect, standing alone in a tract of waste ground. It was indeed from this den that the cries had proceeded. 
They were now repeated, and were immediately followed by two pistol-shots. The house was hermetically closed, but through the cracks in the window-shutters gleamed a reddish light like that of a fire. One of the police agents darted to one of these windows, and raising himself up by clinging to the shutters with his hands, endeavored to peer through the cracks and to see what was passing within. Gevrol himself ran to the door. "'Open!' he commanded, striking it heavily. No response came. But they could hear plainly enough the sound of a terrible struggle, of fierce imprecations, hollow groans, and occasionally the sobs of a woman." "'Horrible!' cried the police agent, who was peering through the shutters. "'It is horrible!' This exclamation decided Gevrol. "'Open in the name of the law!' he cried a third time. And, no one responding, with a blow of the shoulder that was as violent as a blow from a battering-ram, he dashed open the door. Then the horror-stricken accent of the man who had been peering through the shutters was explained. The room presented such a spectacle that all the agents— and even Gevrol himself, remained for a moment rooted to the threshold, shuddering with unspeakable horror. Everything denoted that the house had been the scene of a terrible struggle, of one of those savage conflicts which only too often stain the barrière drinking dens with blood. The lights had been extinguished at the beginning of the strife, but a blazing fire of pine logs illuminated even the furthest corners of the room. Tables, glasses, decanters, household utensils, and stools had been overturned, thrown in every direction, trodden upon, shivered into fragments. Near the fireplace two men lay stretched upon the floor. They were lying motionless upon their backs with their arms crossed. A third was extended in the middle of the room. A woman crouched upon the lower steps of a staircase leading to the floor above. She had thrown her apron over her head and was uttering inarticulate moans. Finally, facing the police, and with his back turned to an open door leading into an adjoining room, stood a young man, in front of whom a heavy oaken table formed, as it were, a rampart. He was of medium stature, and wore a full beard. His clothes, not unlike those of a railway porter, were torn to fragments, and soiled with dust and wine and blood. This certainly was the murderer. The expression on his face was terrible. A mad fury blazed in his eyes, and a convulsive sneer distorted his features. On his neck and cheek were two wounds which bled profusely. In his right hand, covered with a handkerchief, he held a pistol which he aimed at the intruders. "'Surrender!' cried Gevrol. The man's lips moved, but, in spite of a visible effort, he could not articulate a syllable." "'Don't do any mischief,' continued the inspector. "'We are in force. You cannot escape, so lay down your arms.' "'I am innocent,' exclaimed the man, in a hoarse, strained voice. "'Naturally, but we do not see it.' "'I have been attacked. Ask that old woman. I defended myself. I have killed. I had a right to do so. It was in self-defense.' The gesture with which he enforced these words was so menacing that one of the agents drew Gevrol violently aside, saying as he did so, "'Take care, General, take care, the revolver. The revolver has five barrels, and we have heard but two shots.' But the inspector was inaccessible to fear. He freed himself from the grasp of his subordinate, and again stepped forward, 
speaking in a still calmer tone. "'No foolishness, my lad. If your case is a good one, which is possible, after all, don't spoil it.' A frightful indecision betrayed itself on the young man's features. He held Gevrault's life at the end of his finger. Was he about to press the trigger? "'No.' He suddenly threw his weapon to the floor, exclaiming, "'Come and take me!' And turning as he spoke, he darted into the adjoining room, hoping doubtless to escape by some means of egress which he knew of. Gevrol had expected this movement. He sprang after him with outstretched arms, but the table retarded his pursuit. "'Ah!' he exclaimed, "'the wretch escapes us!' But the fate of the fugitive was already decided." While Gevrol parlayed, one of the agents, he who had peered through the shutters, had gone to the rear of the house and effected an entrance through the back door. As the murderer darted out, this man sprang upon him, seized him, and with surprising strength and agility dragged him back. The murderer tried to resist, but in vain. He had lost his strength. He tottered and fell upon the table that had momentarily protected him, murmuring loud enough for everyone to hear, "'Lost! It is the Prussians who are coming!' This simple and decisive maneuver on the part of the subordinate had won the victory, and at first it greatly delighted the inspector. "'Good, my boy,' said he, "'very good. Ah, you have a talent for your business, and you will do well if ever an opportunity.' But he checked himself. All his followers so evidently shared his enthusiasm that a feeling of jealousy overcame him. He felt his prestige diminishing, and hastened to add, "'The idea had occurred to me, but I could not give the order without warning the scoundrel himself.' This remark was superfluous. All the police agents had now gathered around the murderer. They began by binding his feet and hands, and then fastened him securely to a chair. He offered no resistance. His wild excitement had given place to that gloomy prostration that follows all unnatural efforts, either of mind or body. Evidently he had abandoned himself to his fate. When Gevrol saw that the men had finished their task, he called on them to attend to the other inmates of the den, and in addition ordered the lamps to be lit for the fire was going out. The inspector began his examination with the two men lying near the fireplace. He laid his hand on their hearts, but no pulsations were to be detected. He then held the face of his watch close to their lips, but the glass remained quite clear. Useless, he murmured after several trials. Useless, they are dead. They will never see morning again. Leave them in the same position until the arrival of the public prosecutor, and let us look at the other one. The third man still breathed. He was a young fellow, wearing the uniform of a common soldier of the line. He was unarmed, and his large bluish-gray cloak was partly open, revealing his bare chest. The agents lifted him very carefully, for he groaned piteously at the slightest movement, and placed him in an upright position, with his back leaning against the wall. He soon opened his eyes, and in a faint voice asked for something to drink. They brought him a glass of water, which he drank with evident satisfaction. He then drew a long breath, and seemed to regain some little strength. "'Where are you wounded?' asked Chevrol. "'In the head, there,' he responded, trying to raise one of his arms. 
oh, how I suffer! The police agent, who had cut off the murderer's retreat, now approached, and, with a dexterity that an old surgeon might have envied, made an examination of the gaping wound which the young man had received in the back of the neck. "'It is nothing,' declared the police agent, but as he spoke there was no mistaking the movement of his lower lip. It was evident that he considered the wound very dangerous, probably mortal. "'It will be nothing,' affirmed Chevrol in his turn. "'Wounds in the head, when they do not kill at once, are cured in a month.' The wounded man smiled sadly. "'I have received my death-blow,' he murmured. "'Nonsense!' "'Oh, it is useless to say anything. I feel it, but I do not complain. I have only received my just deserts.' All the police agents turned toward the murderer on hearing these words, presuming that he would take advantage of this opportunity to repeat his protestations of innocence. But their expectations were disappointed. He did not speak, although he must certainly have heard the words. "'It was that brigand, Lacheneur, who enticed me here,' continued the wounded man, in a voice that was growing fainter. "'Lacheneur?' "'Yes, Jean Lacheneur, a former actor who knew me when I was rich. For I had a fortune, but I spent it all. I wished to amuse myself. He, knowing I was without a single sou in the world, came and promised me money enough to begin life over again. Fool that I was to believe him, for he brought me to die here like a dog. Oh, I will have my revenge on him. At this thought, the wounded man clenched his hands threateningly. I will have my revenge, he resumed. I know much more than he believes. I will reveal everything. But he had presumed too much upon his strength. Anger had given him a moment's energy, but at the cost of his life which was ebbing away. When he again tried to speak, he could not. Twice did he open his lips, but only a choking cry of impotent rage escaped them. This was his last manifestation of intelligence. A bloody foam gathered upon his lips, his eyes rolled back in their sockets, his body stiffened and he fell face downward in a terrible convulsion. "'It is over,' murmured Gevrol. "'Not yet,' replied the young police agent, who had shown himself so proficient. "'But he cannot live more than two minutes. Poor devil! He will say nothing.' The inspector of police had risen from the floor as if he had just witnessed the commonest incident in the world, and was carefully dusting the knees of his trousers. "'Oh, well,' he responded, "'we shall know all we need to know. This fellow is a soldier, and the number of his regiment will be given on the buttons of his cloak.' A slight smile curved the lips of the subordinate. "'I think you are mistaken, General,' said he. "'How?' "'Yes, I understand. Seeing him attired in a military coat, you supposed. But, no, this poor wretch was no soldier. Do you wish for an immediate proof? Is his hair the regulation cut?' Where did you ever see soldiers with their hair falling over their shoulders? This objection silenced the general for a moment, but he replied brusquely, Do you think that I keep my eyes in my pocket? What you have remarked did not escape my notice. Only, I said to myself, here is a young man who has profited by leave of absence to visit the wig-maker. At least, but Gevrol would permit no more interruptions. 
"'Enough talk,' he declared. "'We will now hear what has happened. "'Mother Chupin, the old hussy, is not dead.' "'As he spoke, he advanced toward the old woman, "'who was still crouching upon the stairs. "'She had not moved nor ventured so much as a look "'since the entrance of the police, "'but her moans had not been discontinued. "'With a sudden movement, Gevrol tore off the apron "'which she had thrown over her head,' and there she stood, such as years, vice, poverty, and drink had made her, wrinkled, shriveled, toothless, and haggard, her skin as yellow and as dry as parchment, and drawn tightly over her bones. "'Come, stand up,' ordered the inspector. "'Your lamentations don't affect me. You ought to be sent to prison for putting such vile drugs into your liquors, thus breeding madness in the brains of your customers.' The old woman's little red eyes travelled slowly round the room, and then in tearful tones she exclaimed, "'What a misfortune! What will become of me? Everything is broken. I am ruined!' She only seemed impressed by the loss of her table utensils. "'Now, tell us how this trouble began,' said Gevrol. "'Alas, I know nothing about it. I was upstairs mending my son's clothes when I heard a dispute.' "'And after that?' "'Of course I came down, and I saw those three men that are lying there picking a quarrel with the young man you have arrested, the poor innocent, for he is innocent, as truly as I am an honest woman. If my son, Polite, had been here, he would have separated them. But I, a poor widow, what could I do? I cried, Police, with all my might!' After giving this testimony she resumed her seat, thinking she had said enough. But Gevrol rudely ordered her to stand up again. "'Oh, we have not done,' said he. "'I wish for other particulars.' "'What particulars, dear Monsieur Gevrol, since I saw nothing?' Anger crimsoned the inspector's ears. "'What would you say, old woman, if I arrested you?' "'It would be a great piece of injustice.' "'Nevertheless, it is what will happen if you persist in remaining silent.' I have an idea that a fortnight in Saint-Lazare would untie your tongue. These words produced the effect of an electric shock on the widow Chupin. She suddenly ceased her hypocritical lamentations, rose, placed her hands defiantly on her hips, and poured forth a torrent of invective upon Gevrol and his agents, accusing them of persecuting her family ever since they had previously arrested her son, a good-for-nothing fellow. Finally, she swore that she was not afraid of prison, and would be only too glad to end her days in jail beyond the reach of want. At first the general tried to impose silence upon the terrible termagant, but he soon discovered that he was powerless. Besides, all his subordinates were laughing. Accordingly, he turned his back upon her, and, advancing toward the murderer, he said, "'You, at least, will not refuse an explanation.' The man hesitated for a moment. "'I have already said all that I have to say,' he replied at last. "'I have told you that I am innocent, and this woman and a man on the point of death who was struck down by my hand have both confirmed my declaration. What more do you desire? When the judge questions me, I will perhaps reply. Until then do not expect another word from me.' It was easy to see that the fellow's resolution was irrevocable and that he was not to be daunted by any inspector of police. Criminals frequently preserve an absolute silence, from the very moment they are captured. 
these men are experienced and shrewd, and lawyers and judges pass many sleepless nights on their account. They have learned that a system of defense cannot be improvised at once, that it is, on the contrary, a work of patience and meditation, and knowing what a terrible effect an apparently insignificant response drawn from them at the moment of detection may produce on a court of justice, they remain obstinately silent. So as to see whether the present culprit was an old hand or not, Gevrol was about to insist on a full explanation, when someone announced that the soldier had just breathed his last. "'As that is so, my boys,' the inspector remarked, Two of you will remain here, and I will leave with the others. I shall go and arouse the commissary of police, and inform him of the affair. He will take the matter in hand, and we can then do whatever he commands. My responsibility will be over in any case, so untie our prisoners' legs and bind Mother Chupin's hands, and we will drop them both at the station-house as we pass. The men hastened to obey, with the exception of the youngest among them, the same who had won the general's passing praise. He approached his chief, and motioning that he desired to speak with him, drew him outside the door. When they were a few steps from the house, Gevrol asked him what he wanted. "'I wish to know, General, what you think of this affair.' "'I think, my boy, that four scoundrels encountered each other in this vile den. They began to quarrel, and from words they came to blows. One of them had a revolver, and he killed the others.' It is as clear as daylight, and according to the antecedents of the victims, the assassin will be judged. Perhaps society owes him some thanks. And you think that any investigation, any further search, is unnecessary? Entirely unnecessary. The younger man appeared to deliberate for a moment. It seems to me, General, he at length replied, that this affair is not perfectly clear. "'Have you noticed the murderer, remarked his demeanour, and observed his look? "'Have you been surprised, as I have been? "'By what?' "'Ah, uh, well, it seems to me—I may, of course, be mistaken, "'but I fancy that appearances are deceitful, and—yes, I suspect something.' "'Bah! Explain yourself, please.' "'How can you explain the dog's faculty of scent?' Gevrol shrugged his shoulders.' In short, he replied, you sent a melodrama here, a rendezvous of gentlemen in disguise, here at the Poivriere, at Mother Chupin's house. Well, hunt after the mystery, my boy, search all you like, you have my permission. What? You will allow me? I not only allow you, I order you to do it. You are going to remain here with any one of your comrades you may select, and if you find anything that I have not seen— I will allow you to buy me a pair of spectacles. End of section 1